We are talking once again with Job Parrish and Maria Tomchik, local writers and activists, here to give us a wrap-up of this past week's news. Good morning. Good, Good morning. afternoon. And afternoon. So, starting out with local and some developments regarding our, the upcoming city council elections, which are still, ha- what, half a year off, but... Still a ways away, but uh, yeah. candidates are yeah, positioning the, the themselves... Primary. The primary will be in <laughs> August. In August, yeah. The general election in November. Yeah, and uh, this week, Teresa Mosqueda announced that she's running for the King County Council District 8 seat that covers <sighs> downtown, West Seattle, south to White Center, and includes Soto, Georgetown, and Vashon Island. Joe McDermott had announced that uh, he currently holds that seat. He had announced that he is not running for re-election, and he's held that seat since 2011. So you, you might be asking why Teresa Mosqueda wants to run for county council, because uh, that seat has actually fewer constituents in it than her current position as an at-large city council member, which covers the entire city of Seattle. However, she was reelected two years ago, so even if she loses the race for county council, she'll still have her current seat if she wants it. Yeah, she has said that she's going to stay working for the city council while she runs. So if she doesn't win that county council seat, she'll still be on city council. But if she does win that election, then the who, whoever is elected to be the new city council members in 2024 for many of these districts will be deciding on a replacement for her last two years of her term, 2024 and 2025. But I think partly why she's running for county council is that they work on some bigger issues than the city council does. Um, And, of course, it can be a stepping stone to higher office. And then if you look at the current makeup of the city council and how many of the current members are leaving, she's going to be losing a whole lot of allies on the city council. Uh, And, of course, she could be burned out on doing budget work when the mayors that she's working with keep giving her messy budgets that have to be cleaned up, right? Now, Mosqueda has named some of the issues that she wants to tackle on the county council. She said she wants to help uh, build six behavioral health centers in King County as long as voters decide to pass that initiative to fund those. She wants to build more workforce housing in areas of the county outside the city of Seattle uh, she wants to work on providing transit during off-peak hours for workers who work swing shift and overnight. And, uh, you know, she wants to work on improving apprenticeship programs and uh, other educational opportunities for working folks. Now, she was a labor activist and a labor lobbyist in Olympia before she ran for city council position eight, one of the two at-large positions in 2017. Uh, she ran for re-election in 2021, and um, she is uh, very, I think, very ambitious. <clears throat> She's yeah, also an in, incredibly in, likable person. In 2022, <laughs> before it was clear that Bob Ferguson was going to run for re-election, she had announced for attorney general statewide. Yeah. So she definitely has aspirations for higher office. Yeah, and. And, you know, when you look at the current city council, um, uh, some of the city council members are mentioning that they're leaving because they've just been hassled and vilified by certain members of the public. Um, when people trash talk city council members, they often trash talk the Amazon tax 
and Shama Sawant and Lisa Herbold and others, members of the city council, but you don't hear them complaining about the jumpstart payroll tax or Teresa Mosqueda. And that's I, really I, interesting. I can tell you why, because Jason Rance and Dory Monson have never targeted Mosqueda. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, you know, or rarely done so. Whereas they, they have gleefully teed off on, you know, Herbold and especially Sawant. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, what I think is probably happening behind the scenes, I don't know this for a fact, but I think other members of the Democratic Party are really urging uh, Mosqueda to start running for higher office because I think they're looking towards finding a replacement for Patty Murray when Murray retires from the U.S. Senate. Yeah, and, when when is she up for re-election? Is it next year? Yeah, I, I, I don't know if she's going to go for another term or not because um, she's getting up there in years. And I think at some point the Democrats are going to have to look for somebody who can represent Washington state effectively and can work in an environment that's highly partisan um, and is difficult for you to find allies and get things passed. And Mosqueda has proven that she can do that. So I think she's probably one of those folks that Democrats would like to see move up in the ranks. Yeah. And the the question of when Murray retires, I mean, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, Good Lord, how many octogenarians are there in the U.S. Senate? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's an old folks home, basically. So, <laughs> so Murray, ways, yeah. Murray might run for a couple more terms and, and be right at home. Um, but um, if she wants to effectively represent the state, uh, she might decide it's time to retire. Yeah. And 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 you bet that the Democrats are looking at a plan B for that. Cantwell is also not that young anymore. So That's true. She yeah. could, so Mosqueda could be eyeing Cantwell's seat. Or she could want to run for, for Ferguson's job if he decides that he's finished fairly soon. So, you know, we'll see. Yeah, or if Ferguson decides to run for governor. I mean, there's all sorts mm-hmm. of... That's you know, a possibility, too. Depending on what Inslee decides to do. Yeah, and Inslee um, is not... not a shoe in for for governor in future races as well. He's he's not a, a young guy either. So no, <laughs> and he would be going for a fourth term, which is pretty much unprecedented. So another announcement this week: Tammy Morales announced that she'll run for re-election for District Two. She was originally elected in 2019 to her first term, and like Andrew Lewis in District Seven, she's going to be running for a second term for City Council. District 2 covers Southeast Seattle from the International District, Southeast to Beacon Hill and Rainier Valley. Now, she's been a strong advocate for her neighborhood, pushing the city to do a better job at providing affordable housing, safer streets, including more sidewalks, traffic signals, and protected bike lanes for Southeast Seattle, and uh, more job opportunities, including training and apprenticeship programs. She's been big on centering jobs, housing, safe transportation, recreation, and educational opportunities within the same area in order to create what she calls or what's often called 15-minute neighborhoods instead of forcing people to go downtown for everything. Part of that model is revitalizing neighborhood business districts and the small, often minority-owned businesses that comprise them in her district. So that's something she says she's going to focus on in a second term if voters reelect her. 
but I think a big part of that model also means making pe- making sure that people are safe in their neighborhoods, whether that means safely crossing a busy street, safely biking to and from work, taking your kids to school or being safe from gun violence or in the case of some of her na- some of the neighborhoods she represents being safe from police violence. So with this announcement, that leaves only Dan Strauss, the representative from District 6, to announce whether or not he's going to run for a second term. All indications are that he probably will, but you never know. Uh, District 6 is well known for neighborhood NIMBYs who go to uh, neighborhood meetings and kick up a fuss and can be quite abusive towards their city council representatives. So we'll see if uh, Dan Strauss decides to run for a second term. And then I want to just discuss some candidates this week who jumped into some of the races for the open seats on the city council. Uh, Of which there are now four and potentially five. Yeah. In uh, District 1, two new candidates announced that they're running. Uh, First is, that's the uh, seat that Lisa Herbold is vacating. First is a really good candidate, Preston Anderson, a career social worker who currently works at the Veterans Administration uh, Puget Sound Healthcare System, where he treats veterans with behavioral health needs and administers funds for transitional housing. He's a former Army medic. He's also worked at Western State Hospital and the Seattle Downtown Emergency Services Center. His key issues are affordable housing, educational opportunities, living wage jobs, preferably union jobs, and reducing gun violence by partnering with youth and BIPOC communities to build trust and remove guns from Seattle's streets. So not your typical sort of tough-on-crime gag reflex that you hear from the pro-business candidates. And uh, he seems like a really – like he might be a really good replacement for Lisa Herbold. Now, the second candidate from that district is Marin Costa. She's a founder of Amazon Employees for Climate Justice, uh, for which she was fired in 2020 from Amazon after the group began to work on labor issues with another group within the company. Um, Costa then went on to work at Microsoft, where she's been pushing the company to look at the environmental impacts of, of its massive 401k plan. She hasn't yet launched a website, but she will would probably side with the progressive members of the city council uh, if she were elected. I'm not clear, though, that she knows very much about the big issues that the city council has been tackling, aside from uh, being supportive of things that the Green New Deal Oversight Board is working on. So it'll be interesting to see if she gets up and running as a candidate. I currently, though, I'm kind of leaning towards Preston Anderson as the better progressive choice in that race so far. Yeah, and I'm sure the, more candidates will will register for that. Oh, seat. Prob- probably yeah. a dozen of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, and one of the things that I've checked in with uh, prospective council candidates about mm-hmm. back in the days when I was consulting with them is, do you really want this job? Because mm-hmm. people can be motivated by really, you know, big macro issues like climate change. But so much of city council is really tedious, small stuff. It's zoning variances and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. It's not it's not glamorous at all. You know, you get every now and then you get a really high profile issue like the Amazon tax or something like that. But usually it's pretty boring work. And, you know. Um, and you have to be willing to sit through hours of meetings. Yeah, and 
And, you know, back in the day, I think that's one of the things that made Nick Licata so effective is he came to city council from working as an insurance agent. And it's like, well, what kind of preparation is that? It's great preparation because you're so attuned to fine print and details. Mm-hmm. And he was really good at that. Able to read read through lots and lots of documents, able to make wording choices and changes that that uh, satisfy people and make compromises. It's a lot of a lot of difficult work that many, many people don't have the patience for. So, yeah, I mean, there there are skills mm-hmm. that go into being a uh, an elected official, not just a politician who runs for office. Right. That, um you know, the, the, I, the, I think the popular idea as well, anybody can do that. Well, no, it takes some particular skills. And, uh, a lot of people who run for office don't actually have those skills. Yeah. They may have the skills necessary to get into office, like Sarah Nelson, to pick a random example. But, um, <laughs> but they don't necessarily have the skills to, to serve effectively once they're on council. Yeah. So, um, some of the other candidates that declared this week in District 3, Andrew Ashiofu announced that he will be running for the seat that Shama Sawants is leaving. He is the Seattle LGBTQ plus commission co-chair. Uh, he wants to work on housing and homelessness issues and he has lived experience of homelessness, having been kicked out of his home as a teenager when he came out as gay. He supports I-135 to create social housing in Seattle, and he's a fan of the city of Amsterdam's 40-40-20 rule that requires new housing to contain 40% social housing, 40% affordable housing, and 20% market rate housing. He's also interested in working on setting up a civilian team to respond to lower priority 911 calls, so he would be an ally of Andrew Lewis on that project. He opposes paying hiring bonuses to recruit new police officers, and he thinks that money that that money would be better spent on alternatives to policing. Uh, he has not criticized Shama Sawant, and he says that he voted for her over Egan O'Brien in the last election. But then he doesn't call himself a socialist either. But I think he would be an outstanding uh, representative for District Three. He's more versed on the issues than just about than anybody else who has declared for that seat so far. Now, in District 4, there are now three candidates. Matthew Mitnick, who I've talked about in the past, he's a member of the Seattle Human Rights Commission, a grad student at the UW, and a labor activist and member of the Democratic Socialists of America. Ron Davis has also declared for that race. Uh, that uh, And District 4, again, is the position that Andrew Peterson is leaving in northeast Seattle. Alex Peterson. Or Alex Peterson, sorry. Uh, Ron Davis has declared for District 4. He's an urbanist techie who's served on the boards of FutureWise, Seattle Subway, the Roosevelt Neighborhood Association, and he is now working for the University YMCA. He names affordable housing, homelessness, public safety, and climate as his main issues, with housing costs being his top priority. In 2021, he wrote an op-ed for Crosscut that proposed a couple of solutions to Seattle's homelessness crisis. One, one was rent vouchers for folks who don't have behavioral or addiction issues to immediately get them off the street and into apartments that they can afford. Uh, and the other is, was cash supports. In other words, a guaranteed basic income for people who cycle in and out of homelessness multiple times in a year because they just have no savings and they don't make enough money to afford rent 
food, utilities, and transportation. Yeah, the city has had a voucher program in the past, Mm -hmm. but the trick behind it is that, you know, once they give you three months' worth of vouchers, you are considered permanently housed, and they drop you from the program. And of course, which is you know, why he's proposed the basic income. Okay, right, exactly. You, you know, you get the rent voucher, you get off the street for for a few months, and then you just don't have enough money to keep it going. Well, a guaranteed basic income could ensure that you could at least cover rent, and yeah. then you know whatever you make, make working difference. can cover the rest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so he uh, might become a fan of progressive tax measures to pay for those kinds of ideas. And I think he would be a, a pretty good ally for the progressive bloc on the city council. Also uh, declaring a candidacy in District 4 was Kenneth Wilson, who is the same guy who ran against Teresa Mosqueda for the at-large city council position 8 in 2021. He's he's a business owner who ran on a law and order campaign, and he lost big to Mosqueda. He took only about 16% of the vote in that race. So I'm not uh, imagining that he will do much better in District 4, but we'll see. And then in District 5, Peter Kathine Wilson has declared that he'll run. Uh, he works with the nonprofit organization REACH. Uh, to f- to find housing for chronically homeless people. He hasn't set up a website yet. He hasn't been interviewed by hardly anyone, uh, which I think is an indication that District 5 in the far north of Seattle is probably similar to District 2 in some ways. It doesn't get a whole lot of media attention, doesn't get a whole lot of attention from from uh, the from the movers and shakers in Seattle. And we'll just see it, uh, how many other people declare in that race. So, starting to get exciting. Yeah, it's starting yeah. to heat up and get kind of exciting. And we will stay on it. We will. But uh, prior to that, there is a uh, a vote coming up uh, in just over a just week. Just a couple of weeks, yeah. Yep. Uh, February 14th, Valentine's Day, uh, is the vote on I-135 to create a new public development authority called the yeah. Seattle and Social Housing Developer. And people should have already received their ballots as yes. yesterday or today. Yes. To build uh, public housing in Seattle that will serve a mix of income levels. Now, the ballot contains the description of the initiative and arguments for and against it. So you won't get a separate voters pamphlet. It comes in with the ballot. I read the entire thing the arguments for and against, as well as the initiative itself, which includes the charter for the Seattle Social Housing Public Development Authority. Now, I just wanted to address some of the arguments against the initiative, that arguments against say that it comes with no funding source, that it will compete with other affordable housing groups for resources, and that it uh, will acquire existing unsubsidized low-income apartments and convert them to higher-income units. So it'll be a force for gentrification. Now, I wanted to address those three arguments. By law, an initiative can't be about two things. So, of course, it doesn't come with a tax or fee that would raise revenue to fund it. However, it has specific wording that says the city can use bonding capacity and that the new authority would be able to borrow money and use rents to fund operations, build housing, and acquire properties. So, yes, it does come with funding sources, just not a separate or new tax or fee increase. 
It's not structured to compete with other affordable housing developers for the same resources. It's structured as a public development authority specifically so it can seek out funding that other affordable housing developers don't have access to. And finally, the charter contains wording that says the following, quote, if the public developer takes over a building, existing residential tenants will not be displaced. And then it goes on to say that the desired mix of income ranges will only be achieved as tenants naturally move on and turn over their units. So no one will be evicted in order to up to upgrade their apartments and rent them out to folks making more money at higher rent rental rates. Okay. And then I just want to say that as the proponents of the initiatives ha have said over and over, it's going to take a lot of different things to solve Seattle's affordable housing crisis. This is just one piece of that mix, and I think a very important one. So I think the progressive move here is to vote yes for I-135. And don't forget to vote. You should be should have gotten your ballot in the mail already. If you haven't and you know you're a registered voter in within the city of Seattle, you can go to the Seattle Ethics and Elections Commission and uh, request that they send you a ballot. Yeah, and there's drop boxes all over the county, and if you return that uh, that ballot by mail or drop box before February 14th. Mm -hmm. Make sure you tear off the little strip that comes with your ballot, and you can track whether your ballot has been received or not. Yeah, and remember okay. to sign the back of it. Yeah, sign the envelope when you mail it. All right. On to the this week's legislative update. Yeah, there's some bill there are a few bills that have passed uh their chamber of origin this week. There's one in particular I want to talk about that's uh substitute house bill 1326 would allow municipal utility companies to waive the connection fees for affordable housing or transitional housing, permanent supportive housing or emergency shelter projects built by nonprofits, public development authorities, housing authorities and local agencies. This is just one of a number of uh, proposed bills that would that would lower the barrier for building affordable housing and shelters in uh, the state of Washington. And I think it's a good move that it has already passed the House and is on its way to the Senate, and it's still pretty early in the legislative session. Now, there are four bills that would protect abortion access in Washington state that have been recently introduced. I just want to talk about one in particular that I think is really important. It's Senate Bill 5599. It would allow youth shelters to house youth seeking protected medical services without informing their parents. And this would allow youth who are fleeing home to get an abortion or gender reassignment treatment. Uh, to obtain safe shelter after they after they fled or been kicked out of their home. This is particularly important for girls who've been raped by a family member or their part or or that family member's partner, and youth who are transitioning and are very vulnerable to abuse by older relatives. This bill would also appropriate seven point five million dollars for access to supportive care grants. Uh, for organizations that provide these treatments to youth and young adults. I think that is a vital bill. So um, I would encourage people to contact uh, the committee that is hearing Senate Bill 5599. But also there is another bill, House Bill 1469 and Senate Bill 5489. That's the SHIELD bill. 
which defines protected health care services in Washington state to include reproductive health care services and gender affirming, affirming treatment. But it also restricts the courts from going after people who receive or provide these services in Washington state. And it forbids businesses from releasing records of people who receive reproductive and gender affirming care in Washington state. This is to protect Washington residents from any other laws passed anywhere else in the United States relating to prosecuting people who receive or perform abortions or gender affirming uh, services. Yeah, I think bear, a very in, important. Yeah. Bear in mind that the Washington state constitution protects the right to abortion, but that would be superseded by any, federal legislation. So yeah. This is, so this, this is, really is an important. attempt to 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 fix that. There are other bills too, but these I think are the two most important. Lots of bills are still in committee. Uh you can go to the Washington State Legislature's website at leg.wa.gov for more information. All right. <laughs> Moving on then to national and updates on uh, Tyree Nichols? Yeah, this time last week, um, we had just seen the release of uh, uh, four videos from uh, the city of Memphis about the, the death of Tyree Nichols uh, at the hands of, um, allegedly at the hands of uh, Memphis police officers. And we talked about those a little <coughs> last week. <coughs> um, five of those officers have been charged with secondary murder. What the videos showed was several disturbing things. Uh, there were uh, literally close to a dozen different first responders on the scene, none of whom intervened as the, the five primary officers uh, kicked and beat Nichols. Um, when he was first pulled over, and we, we haven't seen the, we haven't seen audio or heard audio from the the, the the second confrontation after he fled, but when he was first pulled over and pulled out of his car for no apparent reason, uh, and Memphis has not uh, offered a reason, he was given a number of contradictory orders by police officers, and this is a very very common in a uh, a heightened situation where you've got amped up police officers who are literally yelling different orders that may or may not you know, line up with each other. You know, you can't put your hands in the air and put your hands behind your back at the same time, for example. Um, so Nichols really couldn't have done anything in that situation. And it was very, very clear that, I mean, he's a small guy and the five officers that are charged are all in excess of 200 pounds. Two of them are former football players. So, you know, it, it's not clear what was motivating the officers. Um, they were with an elite unit called the Scorpio unit, which is uh, meant to, uh, you know, patrol high crime areas. And uh, in exchange, those units typically receive uh, much less supervision and much less accountability than your normal patrol officer. Um, in every city where these units have been tried, and Baltimore is another notorious example, and there are others, including Seattle, they have been a disaster because they lead uh, lack of accountability leads to lack of accountability. And uh, there's something about that type of unit that encourages them to think of, you know, ordinary uh, uh, citizens as the enemy. 
and this is, this is apparently is what was happening in the case of Nichols, because the city has said that they, that was Memphis has said that they could not find any evidence for what prompted, uh, the, the initial pullover. Uh, that there was no evidence that he was driving erratically, as the city first claimed, that there was no evidence that he had violated any other law, but he was pulled out of the car quite violently. Um, so clearly they thought something triggered those officers. And, you know, presumably we'll find out what in the course of their uh, criminal trials. But a very, very sad episode all the way around and really an indictment of how we do law enforcement in modern America. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. A sixth officer was fired uh, this week. The white cop who shot him with the taser uh, at also the a- site of the traffic stop and whose body cam captured video one. Two of the uh, emergency medical technicians who were on the site and did not provide any uh, medical assistance to Nichols as he writhed on the ground and then slipped slowly slipped into a coma over the course of about 20 minutes. Those guys have been suspended and are being investigated as well. And the yep. Scorpion unit that Job just talked about, the uh, the chief of police of Memphis has said that that unit has been dissolved. Yeah, it's been disbanded. Mm-hmm. So those are the updates. But it, it's, a, it, it's a little late for Nichols, but uh, yeah. All right. Well, that's all the time we've got for this week. So save, start saving them up for next week. We'll be back next week. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah.